Very good morning again. Welcome to Church of the Good Shepherd. It's so good to see you here, especially welcome those who are guests in our midst, uh, who are visiting us, or maybe you've come occasionally. It's uh, wonderful that you can be with us. We're looking at this passage, which is well known, and especially the, this verse, which says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Well-known passage. But I hope to unpack it and to share with you that's more than just avoiding tax evasion. <laughs> right? More than, uh, you know, making sure you pay your dues. Because I think it goes to the heart of uh, how we are called to live our life. It begins, the passage begins in verse 15. And um, we remember the context, of course, as, as I shared earlier from some of the other passages. Uh, this is after Jesus had uh, entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. And, you know, the opposition towards uh, Jesus and his ministry was growing. Because the leaders of the day felt more and more threat from the growing popularity. And this is the case we see. Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his own words. All right, this was a way in which they were trying to bring about his downfall. And what's interesting as we look at this plot is who the uh, um, conspirators are. It says they sent their disciples to him, probably because they wanted them to take cover. The Pharisees may have been too uh, obvious to them, so sent their disciples whom Jesus may not have known, and sent uh, along with them the Herodians. Now, I don't know if you realize how polar opposite these two groups are. Pharisees were, of course, people uh, uh, of God. They were Jews who were very uh, observant of the law. You know, and in, in their own way, they rebelled not by uh, taking up arms like the zealots would against the Roman oppressors, but they pressed in even further into their Jewish faith, into the Jewish culture. They, they became more stringent in the observance of Jewish law. But on the other hand were Herodians who were also Jews, but they were supporters of Herod. And Herod was the vassal king appointed by the Roman rulers to keep the peace, civil peace. In other words, he was you know, considered the other extreme in that you know, he was uh, uh, um, almost treasonous in a sense, in that you know, traitor to his own countrymen and to his own people and his own culture. And yet, both of them equally felt threat from Jesus and his growing popularity. And so this is the plot uh, they, they hatched. And look, look at the flattery which they used on Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. So basically saying, you know, tell us really, really, what do you think? You know, don't, we, we, we know you, you don't uh, speak untruth. Tell us what's in your heart of hearts. And this is the question. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, obviously, when they're talking about lawful, they're not talking about Roman law. Roman law no-brainer, right? You have to pay your taxes. They're asking, according to the law of God, should we pay taxes? And so we find that Jesus is caught in the horns of this dilemma. On the one hand, the crowds who were following Jesus would probably be upset if Jesus says, you know, yes, pay your taxes. 
Because in their minds, the tax was an unjust tax. Now, you think in our own context, right? You all know, right? 1st January 2024, GST goes from 8% to 9%. And people will moan and groan and grumble, you know, raising taxes by 1%, right? More money out of my pocket into the government's coffers. But they were taxed so heavily, in some cases, uh, scholars believe up to 50-60% was their tax. And over and above that, they had this tax, this Roman tax, which was a poll tax, and it was an unfair tax because it's a flat tax, which means the poor are burdened by it even more than the rich. And it was something which they would have been very upset about. So if Jesus seemed to support uh, the paying of taxes, it would put him at odds with the crowd. But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay tax, guess what? They will report him to the Roman authorities and say, there, he's in rebellion to Roman law. And an insurrectionist, they have an excuse then to ask for his execution. So this was how they were trying to catch him. But Jesus brilliantly answered, and you know, Jesus is aware of what's going on. He's not blind to their uh, uh, plot. Jesus was aware of their malice, and he said to them, you put me to the test, you hypocrites. Why he calls them hypocrites? Because if Jesus, what they said of Jesus is true, that he's a true teacher and what he says is true, why are they not disciples of Jesus themselves? Right? It's hypocrisy in what they say. He asked them, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, this is an example of what is called the tribute penny. This is Caesar Augustus on one side. The other side is one of the goddesses. I don't remember who or what. But on the side of Caesar's uh, face, it says Tiberius uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. You know, and our in essence, calling him divine. And that was the, the cult of the day, right? They would proclaim Caesar is Lord. And on the other side, the flip side is this other uh, uh, an, um, inscription, Pontifex Maximus, pointing to him as the high priest or uh, the bridger and this uh, Roman goddess would be there. Now think about a moment, you being a Jew, devout, keeping the law, especially the Ten Commandments which say, you shall have no other gods before me. And you carry this indignity of, you know, this abhorrent, uh, idolatrous coin being carried in your, on your person and having to pay it all the time. You know, is it any wonder that they felt that injustice and, and, and the fact that, you know, this is something they ought not to be doing. But Jesus then brilliantly says to them and asks the question, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's not a very hard uh, passage to understand. It's not hard to understand the core of this uh, uh, teaching that Jesus made. But what may be difficult for us is trying to translate the same principle into life here and now as we live in Singapore. See, one of the things that we find ourselves uh, believing or have come to understand and is a product of the Enlightenment is that we have divided you know, our 
private and our public spheres of life. In the public sphere would be politics, commerce, you know, all the secular things of the world. And in our private sphere, we consign our religious life and our religious beliefs. Now, I don't know if you realize this. This is something that only arose in the last few hundred years because of the Enlightenment. That, you know, Enlightenment philosophers and thinkers began to say, you know, we need to separate the two. Keep religion private and, you know, everything else can be in the public. That faith needs to be a private uh, affair. And so, therefore, compartmentalize your life. But Jesus, in teaching that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, you know what it means to render to God the things that are God's? Using the same logic, in taking the coin, seeing the image of Caesar, you say that the coin belongs to Caesar. If we were to look at the human person, each and every one of us bears the image of God. Isn't that right? That we were all created in God's image. The imago Dei is imprinted on all of us. So what does it then mean to render to God the things that are God's? What belongs to God? We do. Our entire life belongs to God. And Jesus was also at that point of time saying to them, you need to give yourself to God. Now, they were thwarted in their uh, uh, attempts to trap Jesus. So it was a mic drop moment. They had to go away because they had nothing more to say. But as we reflect on this passage, and as I, I reflected on it and I thought about it, you know, what does that mean for us in living our lives, our everyday life? You know, first and foremost, why is it right for us to give uh, to uh, the authorities what is due? And mind you this, Jesus did not defend the taxation system. It wasn't that the tax was a just tax, because we know that in a lot of politics, right, a lot of uh, stuff goes on that may not be very fair or just. And, but the principle is this, right? Um, Paul taught the Roman Christians in Romans 13, he said to them, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, he wasn't defending the authorities and saying they were just authorities, but he's saying that all authority ultimately comes from God. So when we submit to authority, we are ultimately submitting to God. He makes it even clearer in verse 4. Paul uh, says, <coughs> For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. But if uh, for rulers, do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And ultimately, civil authorities are there to you know, maintain civil order and maintain good. But you, know, you would say, but these authorities are not godly. They may put into laws that may not be good. And that is entirely true. You know, the uh, Old Testament reading was a prophecy from Isaiah about Cyrus 
who was a ruler in Babylon. Look what God says about Cyrus. Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed. Now, he was a pagan ruler. He was a Zoroastrian. He did not worship Yahweh. And yet, he was called God's anointed. And he was the instrument in God's hand that ultimately, 150 years after this prophecy was given, uh, Cyrus was the one that led the people out of exile back to the promised land, back into Jerusalem to allow the rebuilding of the walls of the city and also ultimately the temple. That, you know, there isn't a, a, a sense in which we can compartmentalize our lives and keep the secular secular and the sacred sacred because ultimately all of life belongs to God. That when we submit to authorities, we ultimately submit to God. That's the Christian teaching. But it goes beyond that. Remember in Colossians when Paul, and he did this in Ephesians as well, it's parallel passage, when he was teaching the relationship of um, the household, he didn't only touch on the relationship between parents and children and husband and wife, he also taught the relationship between master and slave because that was part of the household. But, you know, it carries forward into our work-a-day world in that sense. He said to them, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. You know what eye service is, right? When the master see, I do. Don't see, I don't do. <laughs> you know, as long as uh, I'm under their watchful eye, then I make sure I carry out what's needed. Right? But as people, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Because why? What's the principle? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that God will, uh, you will receive an inheritance from God as your reward. Why? Because you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not your master that you serve. That ultimately, all of life, giving of ourselves is to give ourselves heartily in uh, obedience to authorities, to give ourselves heartily in our, our work and employment, whether our work is formal or informal, you know, maybe uh, we're, we're doing other kinds of work. You know, the idea is that ultimately all that we do, we serve God. But you know where oftentimes we find ourselves most tested in giving to God what is God's? It's in our tithes and our offerings. Now, I was uh, telling the people yesterday, I don't preach the messages on stewardship. I only, you know, I don't generally do a sort of campaign which some churches do uh, because I, I don't feel there's a need to do that. But I do, don't shy away from the ma uh, uh, issue, especially when the passage calls for it. And, and I, I assured the young people yesterday, it doesn't matter whether you give or don't give, my salary is the same. I'm an employee of the diocese, my salary is set by them. And whether the giving is down or up, I still receive the same salary. So there's no performance bonus, okay? <laughs> That's not why I'm touching on this topic. But it goes to a very important spiritual principle, you see. My dad always taught me early on in ministry, when I was under his ministry, he, he, he learned that giving in a church is often acts as a thermometer as to the health of the church. Now, you know how thermometers work for uh, physical health? Right? We know that our bodies are so tightly regulated, 36.9 is the normal 
uh, body temperature. And if you go up just half a degree, right, 37.5 is already indicative of a fever, which means there's some kind of infection and your body is fighting that infection. You got one degree uh, further, you know, from there to 38.5, it's a high fever and, you know, then some kind of intervention is needed, whether it be medication or the like. You hit 39.5, 40 degrees, you will be hospitalized, right? It, it indicates to you something is wrong. And he said, giving, if the giving in a church goes down, it's often indicative of something uh, about the spiritual health of the congregation. That there is something going on because ultimately it betrays uh, their spiritual walk with God. Because giving and generosity is really an outgrowth of our giving ourselves to God. Let me use the illustration from um, 2 Corinthians when Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church, it was in the context of, uh, you know, the church had grown beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul was one of its, the apostles that really brought the church to the ends of the earth. But what happened was, in the mother church in Jerusalem, uh, there was a severe economic um, crisis, largely because of drought, and there was a famine that hit uh, uh, the land and they were really, really suffering, the church, the home church. The brothers and sisters in Christ and the rest of the world who weren't affected in that way were really moved by the needs of the Jerusalem church. And so they began to give. And here is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, which is a very wealthy church. Corinth sat on the crossroads of trade between Europe and uh, Asia. And it, it was a, a city that prospered greatly. But he began to challenge them because of the church of Macedonia. Macedonia was a backwater. Macedonia was probably very rural and agricultural, so they were not a wealthy church. And he points out that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 8, their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see, the Macedonian church was able to be generous beyond their uh, circumstances, a poor church that gave, you know, outsized amounts to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And he was basically saying to the Corinthian church, come on, you guys, you have so much more. But the principle of giving and generosity is this. Are you willing to give yourselves first to the Lord? Because that's the heart of giving, and that's generosity. Jesus taught, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <coughs> and it's in that context, he says in verse 7 to the Corinthians, you excel in everything because they were a very gifted church in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. But see that you excel in this act of grace also. And then chapter 9, he teaches 
about uh, giving in and of itself. That's more blessed to give than, no, that's actually Acts, but <laughs> never mind. Uh, uh, God loves a cheerful giver, is, is the context. Now, I know what it means sometimes to withhold the tithe. <laughs> I admit to you, as your pastor, it's happened uh, once a uh, certain period of my life. There was a phase in which I was um, in ministry, and uh, just before I was ordained, I made some unwise financial decisions. I thought to myself, you know, I need to have another income stream. And I, the stock market was going well, and I thought, <laughs> let's invest. And I invested beyond my means. All right? And then things happened, and obviously I found myself in great debt. And in my mind, I said, oh, I need to repay my debt. <laughs> so I began to withhold my tithes, and the Lord had to challenge me on that. Now, I don't want to go into all the details of it, but needless to say, you know, um, I'm out of that debt now. I'm not indebted, all right? I have to sign indebtedness before I became a, 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 a statement of indebtedness before I was ordained. So none of us are allowed to be in uh, um, um, debt. But the point being that, you know, I realized the Lord challenged me on my giving and I began to give my tithe faithfully despite my financial circumstances. And God, in His own way, really helped us out of our uh, hole that it was in. I mean, in, in, in today's terms, I guess, it wasn't really that large a hole. It wasn't impossible to get out of, right? Because it, it was, but it was some unwise financial decisions on my part. But, you know, this principle of giving ourselves to God is so important because oftentimes when we withhold our tithes and our offerings, it's, it, it, it speaks of something deeper inside us. I, I don't know if I want to tell you this story because it's kind of a silly story, but it worked, sort of worked yesterday. <laughs> I'll use it today. <laughs> There's a story of a beloved king who was in desperate need of a heart transplant and his kingdom was gathered around him. He was standing in his castle and they were, you know, um, proclaiming their love to the king. And they said, King, take my heart. Take my heart, king. You know, I give you my heart. Please, the king is dying. The king was so overwhelmed and was you know, grateful that his subjects were so uh, um, uh, generous and willing to do that. So he couldn't pick anyone. He, you know, for the life of him, how is he supposed to select one and not another? So he said, I have a solution. We will uh, allow this feather to select the person who will give me their heart. And I will toss it off the castle and as it lands, whoever this feather lands upon, I will take your heart. And the crowd continued to cry out, Take our heart, king! Take our heart! <laughs> like I said, kind of a silly story. But I wonder how many of us are like that. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I give you everything except my time. The tithe is not a tax, you know. You say it's a 10% GST. No, it's not. Why a tithe? Someone asked me. I say I don't know. I think maybe God knows we many of us are mathematically challenged. 10% very easy to calculate. You receive $5,000 a month. What's your tithe? 
500, just knock off one zero. Easy to calculate. <laughs> you know, God's gracious to us. But it's just a starting point. The idea of the tithe is to acknowledge that everything we have comes from God. And it's not a matter of I'm giving God my 10%. I'm acknowledging and saying, God, I'm so grateful you give me 90%. And I leave that 10% with you because it's yours. Everything I have is yours. And it creates this attitude and understanding that all I am belongs to God. That's what it means to render to God the things that are God's. That's what it means to present your bodies a living sacrifice, as Paul said in Romans 12.1. But you know, what's the irony of this uh, concept of a living sacrifice? See, dead sacrifices will remain on the altar. <laughs> living sacrifices have a propensity to jump off the altar when it's inconvenient or the heat gets too hot. How do we present our bodies a living sacrifice? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. It's at this juncture he's pointing to the first 11 chapters where he talks about the immense mercy of God. That he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. That although all um, people have rejected the creator for the creature, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that God nonetheless loved us and gave himself for us, that he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that even though the wages of sin are, is death, the gift of God is eternal life. And that ultimately nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those are the mercies of God that prompt us then to present our bodies a living sacrifice, to give of ourselves wholly to Him. What does that mean for each and every one of us? I cannot tell you because that's something that you need to go to God for and to ask Him, what is it you hope withhold? You know, as I went through that financial crisis, I realized the problem I had was that I had made money, or at least the things that money could provide, my God. I no longer believe that God can provide. So I took it into my own hands to provide. Now, I'm not saying that we are not to work and to make wise investments and to plan for the future. That's By no means am I saying that. But I realized what God had challenged me on in terms of my tithing was who was God? me. What is the most important thing in my own life? What have I elevated as my object of worship? And I think all of us at some point in life need to ask ourselves that question. And you know, this is why he comes to us graciously through his word to often probe and to challenge and to ask us the question. Yes, in Singapore, I think none of us try to evade taxes. All of us pay the tax that's required because it's law and we see the benefits of our tax dollar. <laughs> but the harder part is to render to God the things that are God's. 
And that's something we need God to help us do. Amen? By His grace, by Him opening our eyes to the mercies of God, to recognizing all that we have really truly comes from Him out of the gratitude of our hearts. Then we give. And that's how we become cheerful givers. Willing givers. Givers that give without, you know, counting. If, if you're not a cheerful giver, please don't give. Alright, I'm not saying this, I'm not preaching this to guilt you into giving. That's the worst reason to give. But if you give, give because the Lord has truly worked in you and calls you to give of yourself to Him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.